you turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 15, we'll be reading from verses 14 through 33. Romans, chapter 15, verse 14 through 33. Paul writes here in this epistle to the Roman church, a church that he had not been able to visit in the past, but his desire is to see them. He writes about godly attitudes and his own perspective of ministry. In verse 14, he writes this, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you Again, because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest of the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God, for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about, as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ, and thus I aspire to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build upon another man's foundation." But as it is written, they who heard had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. For this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped by on my way there by you. When I have first enjoyed your company for a while, but now I am going to Jerusalem, serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do so, and they were indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual blessings, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let's bow in a word of prayer together. 
Our Father, as we have listened, how deep the Father's love for us as they have played. We pray, O God, that you would help us to know you, to know your heart, to know the heart of the Apostle Paul, that we might be more like your Son. Open our eyes, Father, to your word. Grant to us understanding. And pray, God, that we might take to heart that which your word declares. In Jesus' precious name, amen. David Redding, in his book entitled, Jesus Makes Me Laugh with Him, writes this, quote, Orville Kelly was informed in 1990 or so that he had terminal cancer. He and his wife went home to cry, to die. Should they keep it a secret? They prayed. Their answer was that they should play about it. So they decided to give a big party. They invited all of their friends. During the festivities, Orville held up his hand to make an announcement. Quote, You may have wondered why I called you all together. This is a cancer party. I have been told I have terminal cancer. Then my wife realized we are all terminal. We decided to start a new organization. It is called MTC, Make Today Count. You are all charter members, unquote. And since that time, the organization has grown across the country. Orville has been too busy to die, pointing out the way we Christians are to play into the jaws of death, singing, loving, not losing a minute from the, quote, joy that the world cannot give nor take away, unquote. And that organization, MTC, Make Today Count, still lives on today. It is a comfort, a support group to many around the nation. To those who are dying of cancer, it is an organization that reaches out to all and make today count. Here was a man who was terminally ill and he had a few years to live and he made today count. He made today count because his attitude and his perspective on life's difficulties made him do something about his life because every day is precious. And many times it is that attitude that we have. It can be a positive attitude or it can be one that is sour It's really not so much the circumstance as well as that matters to our happiness and joy. It is the attitude and the perspective that we have. For oftentimes we try to change our perspective, try and change our circumstance. And really the problem is in the heart, the attitude and the perspective. And it can be like that even as we serve the Lord in ministry. For many of you have served the Lord in ministry for a long time. Many of you have served as Sunday school teachers or perhaps grown up serving the Lord in the church. And sometimes things cannot be always positive. In fact, sometimes things can be negative. And when things are negative, it is easy to have a sour, ungodly attitude. Motivation is what God is concerned about, the condition and the attitude of the heart. Some people serve out of guilt. Some serve out of habit. Some serve because they feel that they're obligated to. Some people serve because they really don't want to do something else and it's a chance for them to get out of something. The motivations that people serve for. Some people don't serve at all. It's interesting. It's been an interesting week as we've served alongside of the Mexico missions team, you know, hearing their perspective on various jobs that they have had. And it was encouraging as driving in the van, listening to one of them say, you know what, we should help them out whether or not they pay us or not. 
When we serve others, what matters is not how great the job is, how accomplished we can be, or how much, how many accolades we get, but what matters is the motivation of the heart when we serve. And we've just come through a section in the book of Romans where Paul has talked about the work of God in your life and in my life. How He has saved us, how He has justified us, how He has sanctified us, made us right with God, and how we are to live in light of all that God has done. And he talks about how we are to present ourselves as a sacrifice to God, holy and beloved to God. And then he talks about our attitude. Our attitude for not only are we to give ourselves in service, but to have the right attitude at the same time. And here in this text, he exemplifies a heart, the heart of a missionary, the heart of a person who has served God for all of his life. Because, you know, there are some people who will serve God up until a certain point in time and then call it quits. They'll serve God only when it's convenient to. They'll serve God only when it benefits them. They'll serve God and say, well, you know what? I've done my duty. I've served for five years. I've served for ten years or whatever and wiped their hands clean. I've done my thing, feeling as if they are no longer part and they are no longer obligated to serve other people. But here Paul exemplifies attitudes that we're to have as we serve. Six particular points in this particular passage, characteristics of the Apostle Paul that we are to follow as well that are pleasing to God. The first thing that Paul does is he affirms the Roman church. He affirms the Roman church of their goodness and their kindness and their ability to counsel others. Their goodness and their kindness and their ability to counsel others. He says they're full of goodness, verse 14. Filled with all knowledge. Knowledge and able to admonish one another. I mean, here he was talking about the word goodness, which has to do with their moral character. Their moral character. And he talks about their knowledge, which doesn't mean that they're smart. I mean, anybody can be smart, but that doesn't really mean that they're godly. What it means here in knowledge is knowledge of God and His things. And because of that, he says they're what? Also able to admonish one another. That means to counsel, give somebody advice. And he says this about the Roman church. You know what? If you're ever having a problem, you're struggling, you know who you go to seek advice from? You go and seek advice from somebody who is what? Who has goodness, who has good moral character, who has a high moral standard, who has virtue. And you also look for somebody who is knowledgeable in the things of God. Who knows the Word of God. You can ask anybody who is a quote-unquote good person, but they might not have any idea what God's will is for you. Yet, here, many people feel as if, well, how can I admonish others? Admonish, word comes from the word nithetel, means to counsel. That's what we say in biblical counseling, to place the Word of God into somebody else's mind. That's what admonish means. And we're to admonish one another. We've talked about that in the past. Paul says here, you're filled with goodness and you're filled with knowledge and you're able to admonish one another. You're able to counsel one another. These people weren't people that had gone through years of training, learned the latest psychological techniques, or learned what model to follow after. No, they were people who were not only good, but knew the Word of God. And Christians today, you can be a person who bears another person's burdens and to give them counsel and advice when you set your mind on the things of God. You have that ability. You can't say, oh, no, 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 I just don't know. What, 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 how in the world? It goes through years of training or whatever it might be. No, God has given to you His Word, and His Word is sufficient for us to counsel others, to draw them and to help them to see what God's perspective would be on things. And none of these secular approaches to counseling existed even in Paul's time. Things that Christians might tell each other to do. 
you want to give good advice to others and counsel others to make sure you have a high moral character and then train yourself in the knowledge of God's word and his will you'll be able to admonish one another much more effectively but that's what Paul affirms them in their ability to counsel and his approach was to write to them boldly he says I've written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you When Paul wrote, he wrote in a very bold way. He told them, look, you don't look down on others. Look, you don't be divisive. You don't split into divisions. And you're to love your enemies. Those that mistreat you, you're to love them. And when he wrote to the Corinthian church, he wasn't one to pull the punches. He wrote to the Corinthian church and he told them, don't be suing one another. Don't have these cliques in the church. Told them, you know what, this person who calls himself a Christian and is living in sin, you're to cast him out of the church so that he might repent and be drawn back. That's what he told them. He told them what they needed to hear, not what they wanted to hear. And he wrote to these Christians in Rome as well, things that they needed to hear so that they might be reminded. So they might be reminded. I mean, no, it's a very prideful thing you might sometimes hear students or, or other people say in a very prideful way. Yeah, 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 I know, I know, I know. He said, don't forget to do this. Yeah, 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 you told me. Well, the reason why they're reminding you is because we're forgetful people. And Paul writes here about reminding people because we are forgetful people. And last week I went to buy something and, and I went up to, saw, saw something that was, in, that was uh, cheap and I wanted to buy it. And I, for, for, the, for the life of me, I couldn't find my, my wallet. So I told the lady, I don't have my wallet. I was, uh, secondly, I was very scared because I had driven there and it wasn't very far away. It was very close to my home. And I'd driven there and I was driving without my license. I couldn't find my wallet. And I spent, must have been spending an, an hour looking at home. And I, looking at home to all the places, retracing my steps to where my, my wallet had been because I had lost it. I called up the restaurant that I went to the night before, you know. And I and the employees there was looking for it. And he spent some time looking for it. Put my name on some list, etc. Told me he'd call me back if the you know the man when the manager came in. I called my father. My father looked at it because I dropped by home. He looked all over for it. He couldn't find it. I retraced my steps. I checked online to make sure somebody hadn't run up my credit cards and checked my bank accounts to make sure it hadn't gone down to zero. And I was just say for the life of me, I couldn't remember where I put it. I thought, well, I better call my mother because my mother, you know, sometimes my father doesn't tell my mother. And I asked my mother, Mom, when I came back home last, you know, last night, you know, did you, did, can you look around the couch and all that? And she looked around. She said, no, I don't see it. She says, you know what, where do you usually put it, in your front pocket or your back pocket? And I looked in my front, I said, from my front pocket. And there it was in my back pocket. <laughs> Tom Brokaw said, you know... Former NBC News anchor once told the nightly news that once you hit the age of 20, you lose 5% of your short-term memory every 10 years. For some, it seems to be quicker. You ask them what the preacher preached about that Sunday, they can't even remember after service. You know, we, we are people who forget. And Paul reminds them, and reminders are good. When Timothy took on the church at Ephesus, he took on the church that Paul had planted, that Apollos, the powerful preacher, had taught at. And then he took on this church, and Paul reminds them in 2 Timothy 2.14, remind them of these things, because we need to be reminded. And be bold, he told them. He told them very boldly what they needed to hear, not what they wanted to hear, as a reminder So he affirms them of their goodness and their ability to counsel and he tells them in a very bold way, which we should too, what people need to hear. 
And thirdly, he displays his attitude in verse 15. He says, I'm reminding you why, because of the grace that was given to me as a minister of Christ, ministering as a priest, my offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable. How he saw himself was as a minister, as a servant of Christ. He saw himself and what a privilege it is, what a privilege it is to serve. I mean, some people serve and they look at some serving as an obligation. Oh, I'm obligated to do this. They look at it as an inconvenience. I've had people even say to me, uh, boy, don't you think that going to church on Sunday, I mean, just, it's, just a, it's just in the way. When you've got other things you want to do at home. Some people look at serving as well. They have some sort of ulterior motive of ambition. Paul's perspective was, what a privilege it is. It is by the grace of God. It's by the grace of God that you and I can have the opportunity to serve. To have the opportunity to serve God. It's by the grace of God. You know, when the Corinthian church gave an offering, Paul tells them in 2 Corinthians 9.12, he says, this ministry of this service that you're doing, he writes to them, not only fully supplying the needs of God's people, but is overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. I mean, even if our giving, we give of ourselves or our time, they are sacrifices and offerings to God. Do you see your serving in ministry as that? I mean, you, you, you look at it and say, you know what, these are aromatics. We don't sacrifice today like, we, like they did in the Old Testament. We don't decide, well, let's go down to the local, you know, local pet store and pick out the nice little pigeon that's there and bring it to sacrifice. No, we don't do that. We don't have animal sacrifice. But our sacrifices are different today. Our sacrifices are our ministry, our service to God, and it raises to God as an aromatic sacrifice and an offering. And that's how Paul saw his ministry to the Gentiles. And so when you're back there taking care of the toddlers in the nursery and you've got one that's screaming its head off in your arms and another one that's pulling at your feet because you know what, they need to use the bathroom or whatever it might be, how you respond and how you serve, it becomes an offering to God. You bring together, you, you bring together something for the refreshments or you're flipping the slides back there and you're thinking to yourself, what am I doing? This is such a mundane. It's an offering to God. The, the, the lawn you decide to mow for your neighbor so that you might be a good testimony. It's an offering to God. And we present these things as offerings to God and the things that we do because we desire that God would be glorified in the things that we do. And we say to ourselves, God, I do these things for you and I want to do it because it pleases you. And the motive of the heart in doing it is what matters to God. And the attitude is what a privilege it is to be a part of God's work. I always thought about that boy, you know, when I was a kid, serving boy, you know, I have other things I'd rather play or whatever. And it took me a long time to learn what a privilege it is to be used as an instrument of God. And Paul says here that his offering was the Gentiles whom he reached. He was called to reach them. And what a privilege to reach them. That you're an instrument in the hands of God. You're like a glove. God places his hand in you and he's used you to... Minister in various ways to touch people's lives. Even when you pray for people, you have the privilege of touching their lives and seeing them change and seeing God work in their life. And they may never know it, but boy, it brings you joy because you see them doing what's right. It's a privilege and you never get tired of it if you have that perspective. 
There are people who get tired because maybe their motives in serving God have been something different. And, you know, you think, uh, you think that serving is an inconvenience or whatever it might be. You know what? Serving is a privilege. And if you think of that in that way, then you know what? You won't be burnt out. Because your motivation is always going to be there. The pleasure of God, no matter what you do, you do it for God. I think of the movie the Chariots of Fire. Do you remember Eric Liddell? What he said, even as he was a runner, he was an athlete. And when those of you who are in sports compete in athletics... You know, he, 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 would tell, he would tell his uh, sister, who wanted him to go and be a missionary in China, tell his sister, when I run, I feel the pleasure of God. When I run, I feel the pleasure of God. He ran for the glory of God. And you live for the glory of God. That's why when we do ministry, we do it well. We try to do our best. Rather than this, oh, this is good enough, or whatever. And you just strive to do well. Why? Because it's an offering and a sacrifice. As I think of that too, when I prepare lessons or messages, I say, well, God, this is my offering this week. It may not be that good, but Lord, I pray that it might come to you as an aromatic sacrifice, figuratively speaking. Because we desire to serve God. So he affirms them in their ability to counsel. He comes across very boldly and he tells them, you know what, I'm just a servant. I'm just a servant. And because of that, his aspiration was this. Verse 17. His aspiration was that of humility and reaching the unreached. Humility and reaching the unreached. He says, therefore, in Christ Jesus, I've found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. And that's what he says. He says, you know what, all the things that, 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 that are about me, you know, ministry is not about me. Ministry is not about me. Some people see, see it like that. Ministry is about me and they, become very, they can become very possessive because this is my ministry or whatever it might be. You know, I feel, it makes me feel very uncomfortable too when people say, oh, your church or, you know, it's not my church. Or, you know, your ministry. Well, I, you know, I understand what they're saying, but it makes me feel very uncomfortable because this is God's church. This is God's ministry, and I'm just part of it. And if somebody else should share in it, praise God. Because this is God's work. And Paul saw the, all that he had accomplished. All he had accomplished. He'd been the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He'd been a Jew. He's a Roman citizen. He had accomplished much. He was a persecutor of Christians. And he saw all of the things that he had done as considered rubbish in Philippians 3.8. He wrote that he would, quote, not boast except in regard to his weaknesses. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. I mean, it's amazing that, that he, his perspective of all the things he had the, the, the opportunity to be prideful about. I mean, there he was, you know, he could have said, hey, you know what, guys, guess what happened on the last trip I went to that one city? I mean, they almost stoned me. And I tell you, that big stone, it would have knocked out any man. But it hit me and, you know, granted, I went down. But you know what? I picked myself up. You know, Barnabas, my buddy here, I don't know where he was hiding his face at, but somehow he got through it. But me, no, I stepped back up and I decided I'm going to go back into that city and preach the gospel, etc. He had all of these things he could brag about, but he didn't. He, he saw, his, I mean, things are things that they list here. Three things at least he saw here. Gentiles came to faith. Signs and wonders accompanied his ministry. He preached the entire 1,400 miles, you know, which is Yugoslavia, you know, from Jerusalem to Illyricum. 
He did all of that in sandals for the glory of God. But we do what? We want to take credit when things are going well and blame others when things aren't. It's like that little leaguer. The little leaguer who put all of his 60 pounds into slugging that ball and he swung really hard. Barely connected. That little ball flew off the bottom of his bat. Scraped by, jiggled straight back to the, jiggled straight back to the catcher. The catcher fumbled it because it was in the dust and he couldn't groped and groped around for it. And there's plenty of time to catch that little leaguer in first base when that catcher threw the ball and went wildly over the first baseman's head. And that little slugger ran around first base. The coach, the first base coach had told him, go to second, go to second, go to second. And somebody, oh knows who, picked up the ball out in right field, threw it and went wildly into left field. And that little slugger ran around to third base and he was huffing and puffing and he had this man-sized grin as he was coming around third base and he finally made it to home plate. And he said, oh boy, that's the first home run I ever hit in my whole life. Thinking that it was him. Oh, all these missed throws. And we're inclined to take the credit when things are going well and inclined to blame others when things are going wrong. And the same is true in ministry. Paul looked at it and said, you know what? It's not me. It's not about me. It's about Christ. And I want to tell you what Christ has done in my life. I want to tell you about what Christ and what God has done to make God look good, to make God look big and me look small. Secondly, it says here that he aspired to reach the unreached, to reach the unreached. For he says here, what? And I aspired in verse 20 to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named. So I would not build upon another man's foundation. You know, when I was a little boy, we, I think my parents still do. I don't remember. I think they still do. We had a subscription to National Geographic. And National Geographic tells you about the world and takes some amazing pictures, don't they? We had this subscription and every... My mother wanted me to read a National Geographic. We had a whole case full. She wanted me to read one every single week you know, during the summertime. I think I maybe read one that summer. But on the National Geographic, sometimes they've had award-winning photos of people, of people, of the people in different cultures. You know, when you look at those pictures on the cover of National Geographic, you, you wonder what they're like. And you see, sometimes you can see the emptiness in their eyes. What... What is going on? And some of them, they spoke about the war-torn countries that they're in, the countries that are poor. And literally, you think about there are billions of people who are living in certain areas that have no hope. They have no hope. And Paul says here, I aspired to preach to those who uh, don't know Christ, who have no opportunity to hear. You know, in our country, in our country, if somebody really wants to, if somebody really wants it doesn't matter how rich or how poor they are, they can go down to the neighborhood and go to a church. Or they might be able to go to a library and borrow a Bible or borrow, borrow some Christian books. Or they can even call up on any telephone, one eight 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 need him and hear the gospel because it is made available to them. There are Christians here and means by which they can know God. But around the world, there are billions of people who have no hope, no church, no Bible, no Christian literature, no one to tell them about Christ and the free gift of eternal life. There are no one. And even those Christians who dare to go to those places, there are even fewer Christians who say, you know what, we want to support you to go to those places that are unreached. So easy to be self-focused, isn't it, for us, as, even as a church. 
To be so self-focused and say, well, you know what, it's, it's all, life is about me, you know. As one friend would, maybe it's about my, as one friend would call it, a child-centric, child-centric families. Or it's easy to have a life revolve around my family, my happiness, my dreams, my goals, my education, my home, my comforts, my life. And Paul never forgot that, you know what, there was a vision for him. And that was lost. Those who had no one to go to them. When I went to China in 1990, I had the opportunity to visit the house churches underground. They took me around this van to visit some of the leaders of those churches and they would take me around and I would meet them and talk with them and there'd be an interpreter and I remember as I was leaving one of them the last words they said to me after asking for materials and things like that he said don't forget about us don't forget about us don't forget that there are people down the street from you that don't know Christ. Don't forget about the people in your classroom who don't know Christ. Don't turn a blind eye from those who are your coworkers or those who are your neighbors or whoever it might be that they don't know Christ and have an aspiration that I will reach them for Christ, be it through my prayers or through whatever it might be. You know, sometimes the most blind people can be those who are Christians. We're blinded to others who need Christ. And we've been praying in the Mexico missions team, you know, well, we're going to go. And, you know, we've deliberately seated them, either a window seat or an aisle seat. And we've been talking, we talked a little bit about this on the, in the van when we were going to Action International last week about our strategy. And the strategy is to have, must not sit together on the plane. Why? So that there might be somebody in the middle We'll pray for them. Pray that we'll be bold, that we can share the gospel with each of these people. So pray for these students that they might open up and be bold for Christ and share the gospel and say, you know what, this person has no hope of eternity, maybe. And I am the one, perhaps, that will share with them and maybe even win them to Christ even before we even get there. Have an aspiration to reach people for Christ. Paul affirms their commitment and their Ability to counsel, he writes to them boldly. He sees himself as a servant, a humble servant who has a desire to reach others. And then he speaks of the Gentiles and their spirit, the actions of the Gentiles, which is giving. The actions of the Gentiles was giving. He tells us that he's never visited the church in Rome before. But what he also says is, you know what, I'm going to my path of what God has called me to. There's been an offering given in Macedonia and Achaia by the Gentile churches to the poor in Jerusalem. Do you realize how huge that is? You know, the ones in Jerusalem, the Jews, they thought, you know what, the gospel's for us. The good news of the Messiah is for us. It's us, us, not those Gentiles. You know, very ethnocentric. Then there's the Gentiles who say in this passage, as it says here, they realize, you know what, they're indebted to the Jews spiritually. Because the gospel did come through them first and then to the Gentiles second and the Gentiles saw the need of the Jews and so they strove for solidarity, for unity and they took up an offering for the poor in Jerusalem and they gave. And Paul says here, you know what? That's the actions of those who are truly of the Lord. Their genuineness and the salvation showed that they realized, you know what? We are blessed by the Jews we want to be unified and support others and to give. And lastly, he speaks of a request for prayer. Verse 30. 
He speaks of a request for prayer. Urge you, urge you, I may be rescued, 31, from those who are disobedient. My service for Jerusalem might prove acceptable. Two things. That he might be protected from those who are enemies. And he might deliver the gift that he was made, sent to give. Perhaps he was afraid of enemies. Perhaps he was afraid that the Jews might reject a gift from the Gentiles. I don't know. Perhaps he was afraid of, of those who would take away the gifts that were given. Perhaps he might even pray that they might accept him because he was a formerly a persecutor of Jews, you remember. And they in Jerusalem didn't accept him at first. Whatever it might be, it was a desire for prayer specifically, though, from his enemies, protection. And he, the Apostle Paul, often asked for prayer. Often asked for prayer. He prayed and asked in the book of Ephesians at the end, pray that I might be bold. You see the Apostle Paul, missionary, bold? You know, so if you ever feel afraid about sharing the gospel, take heart. You're not the only one that has been afraid. The Apostle Paul was praying and asking for prayers for boldness. He prayed here for protection. He prayed and asked that God would open doors for him in other letters. It's always surprising to me how we can come together sometimes in prayer fellowships or times in prayer. And what? We ask people, well, how can we pray for you? And they have nothing that they can pray for them about. They have nothing they can pray about because why they feel that they have no need or no desire or whatever it might be. We should always have something that people can pray for us for. Why? Is there no one that you're trying to reach for Christ? Do you have no relatives that know, don't know the Savior? Do you have no spiritual desire to grow and to press on? Do you have no passage of Scripture that you've been struggling to understand? We can pray that you might have a passion for Christ then. The book of Acts tells us what happens to Paul. Back in the book of Acts, he did deliver that offering from the Gentiles to the Jews, but he was almost killed by an unruly mob. And he escaped by night with Caesar's soldiers and he underwent shipwreck and deprivation before he finally arrived back in Rome. And he arrived in Rome in chains. That's what happened. Sometimes God requires us to go through difficulties and serving God as well, even in ministry. It can be in difficult time. But even in difficult times, we are to have a godly attitude, an attitude that affirms others, an attitude of boldness to tell people what they need to hear, an attitude of humility and an attitude that aspires to reach people for the law, for Christ. An attitude of giving, an attitude of aspiring to great things and a desire for prayer. I mean, in the past weeks, we've heard here, even as the graduates have come forward, The graduates have come forward and shared their aspirations of what their plans are for the future. And that's not a bad thing. They're all good and very encouraging. But for the rest of us, what are our aspirations? What is our aspirations? What do we desire to do with life? We have one life to live. What do we aspire to do? Do we aspire to do great things for God? Or is it after college I get my career, then I settle into this kind of... uh, family that might turn out to be a good family but perhaps has little impact for the kingdom what are our aspirations our dreams you know when you were in college or high school or whatever you remember the dreams that you'd have the dreams that you have to say you know what i'm going to do this for my life but my question is what are the aspirations that we have the motivations that motivate us to fulfill those things for god and his kingdom what are our aspirations? What do we plant in the hearts of our kids to aspire to something great for God like Paul aspired here? 
and to have the right attitudes and service to God along the way. What are we asking God to do in our life and our heart to conform us with the right attitude so that we might see ourselves as servants of God for a lifetime that everything that we do might be an aromatic sacrifice for the King. And we come and we worship and we give ourselves to Him because God desires that we would do and be instruments for His glory in everything that He has called us to. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we wish, Father, that we would have a heart like Paul's, but even more so, like that of your Son, who said, I have come not to be served, but to serve. We pray, O God, that as we do, Lord, our aspiration might be to reach the lost, to testify of your greatness, that we might do it with humility, that we might do it as a servant, that we might affirm others and, Father, that we might do it for your glory and your name's sake, in remembrance and in honor of your Son. In Jesus' precious name, amen.